1: Joining us now to tell us about municipal finance and green finance is Pat McCoy, finance director for the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority. He directs the issuance of over $3 billion in municipal bonds annually. Pat McCoy, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, you're responsible for the MTA's $34 billion debt portfolio. How much of that would you like to see go into green bond initiatives?
3: Sure. Well, our, our debt outstanding is actually closer to $40 billion now. So, um, look, we everything we do to move people around this city on electrified rail, be it the subways or commuter rails, is inherently green. And we've worked with the Climate Bonds Initiative to, uh, to issue bonds uh, labeled green. And as we continue to roll out our funding of our capital program through the issuance of bonds, I would expect that all of our transportation revenue bond or dedicated tax fund bond issues will be green.
2: Pat, do you ride the subway?
3: I do. I do. I, I commute from Terrytown and Westchester, so I take uh, Metro North uh-huh. to Grand Central, and then I take the Lex Line down here to our office at 2 Broadway.
2: What project would you most like to see done next?
3: Well, you know, we have such a wide variety of projects that we're looking to fund. Uh, Clearly, uh, the the most critical are, uh, you know, signalization in our subways to improve service there and to to enable us to put more trains on the rails and and move people around faster. That's a big project. It's not funded, and we're aggressively looking to put that program together and find funding. How much would it cost? The estimates are in the the many billions. Uh, We don't have a firm estimate at this point. Uh, But it will be a very expensive project.
1: Now, you have a lot of experience dealing with the financing of a variety of projects, uh, not only in your role uh, at the MTA, but also in previous uh, roles. What can you tell people who might be skeptical about green bond initiatives, why you believe they work, and maybe explain a little bit about the attractiveness to the marketplace. Sure. You know the, the the green bond space in our view is is a
3: natural fit to what the MTA is all about. As I said, b- according to the climate bonds initiative low low carbon transport uh, criteria, everything we do to move people on rails is 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 green. That's that in and of itself is important and I think the MTA needs to get recognition in the market for doing th- uh, for undertaking uh, activity that is inherently green. But what does that mean when you say green? It w- good, good, good question. So, we estimate that um, every trip on public transportation saves or avoids about ten pounds of greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. Now on an annualized basis, that's about a 19 million metric ton number.
1: Because the alternative is taking some kind of fossil fuel based transport. Exactly.
3: So the alternative of of, people riding around in cars, typically one person, one car. Um, so we avoid nineteen million metric tons going into the atmosphere every year. We spend about two million metric tons to provide the service that we do. So the net benefit of seventeen million metric tons avoided is inherently good for our region, for yeah. our state, and for the for the economy.
2: When you said that the total debt load right now is forty billion dollars, uh, I imagine it would climb considerably if all the projects you would like to see done, uh, actually, get okayed and the sure. sign off. Uh, we had Richard Ravitch, the former lieutenant governor of New York, on our program a couple months ago, and he said, "You know, the MTA hasn't conducted a thorough study of even what would be required to fix." the subways and, and exactly what the costs would be. Is that accurate?
3: Well, you know, uh, d- 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 look, I have a lot of respect for Dick. He's a friend, and I think he is a, a wonderful um, uh, spokesperson for infrastructure generally. Um, what I'll say is that we're uh, in the throes of working on what we call our 20-year needs assessment, which essentially uh, mandates that all of our agencies, transit authority, the railroads, bridges and tunnels, undertake a, a, a really thorough top-to-bottom review of all of our infrastructure needs that will inform how we put together our next capital program. And that will be the 2020 to 2024 capital program. It will be a five-year capital program. Our current program, the 15 to 19 period, is $33.5 billion. So, you know, I don't want to say Dick's off base on this. What yeah. I would say is that, you know, we're coming up with a new 20-year needs assessment that's going to really lay out what those critical priorities are for the coming capital uh, investment cycle.
2: How much of that $33 billion or so would be financed through the bond market versus through state or, or city funding?
3: Sure. So d- bonds are an important funding uh, component to the capital programs, but not the only thing we, we rely on. The The cornerstone of our capital investment cycle is the federal uh, government through participation in the, the 5307 and the 5309, the formula of... Uh, programs the new starts program for you know for example for second avenue subway and then of course the state and the city kick in so bonds have typically been in that um what about a third to you know 40 percent it varies you know it varies by program by by revenue sources the state can identify for us th- to lever but it will be an important piece of the picture
2: all right which uh, which train line is going to get renovated next that hasn't been announced
3: I wish I could tell you. I don't know. (laughs) You're looking at it.
2: (laughs) 116th Station of the Sea. I think that that's next. And I'm very excited about that.
1: Pat McCoy.
2: (laughs) Pat McCoy, Finance Director for the New York Metropolitan Transportation Authority.
1: I sense a plaque.
2: Yeah, that was totally self-serving for myself. You know,
1: in a lot of public venues, you know, like sure. benches in Central Park, you know, you can get someone to sponsor a train station.
2: It's true. It's true. Yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of my life in train stations. Yeah. Pat McCoy, thank you again for joining us. Right.
3: Pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs>
2: We are here, we are very lucky to say, with the chief executive and the chairman of Build America Mutual, Sean McCarthy and Bob Cochran. Um, And you know, it's interesting, we've seen a number of stories about unprecedented outflows from a few municipal bond funds, we've seen rates rise just across the board as, as benchmarks rise and certainly it's the same story for municipal bonds and I want to start with Sean, what does this mean for municipalities that are hoping to finance infrastructure projects or anything else through the municipal bond market? how are they dealing with or planning around the increasing rates we've seen?
4: So it's interesting, two, um, two points. The first is that um, interest rates are rising because the economy's strong. Um, and one thing to look at is what is the revenue strength or stream that state and local governments have right now. And if we look at that over the past year, it's increased by 6.7%. So the capacity for municipalities to actually issue debt for new money um, has increased Hold over on the last second. year.
2: Because it's really interesting that you say that. I'm just thinking to myself, is it even across the board, or are there certain areas that have actually seen their tax revenues increase dramatically while other places have seen them decline?
4: I'd say generally it's increased, in some okay, places quite so a bit is, more. Okay. Um, so the, as the economy's increased, interest rates have gone up, and generally uh, that capacity for state and local governments has increased. So if you look at it this year, actually, um, there's been a 14% increase in uh, spending by state and local governments on infrastructure. So that's uh, a total of $293 uh, billion in construction, and uh, that would be an increase of $36 billion. So it's not insignificant.
1: Bob uh, Cochran, I'm wondering if you could just step back for a second and describe why you and Sean decided to start this firm. Mm -hmm. You both worked at FSA, that was acquired by Assured. Right. What makes Build America, BAM, mm-hmm. different, not only in its ownership structure, but in the kinds of municipal debt that it underwrites, that right. it
5: guarantees, rather? Right. So, Sean and I got together. We had, uh, we've been together as business partners for over 30 years, um, even prior to FSA. 35 if we're counting. <laughs> right. Uh, builds, and yeah. three days. <laughs> and th- Builds and up four after hours. a while. <laughs> uh, so we had a lot of experience uh, in the industry. We have a love of the industry and a lot of the people that work in it. Um, we took a couple of years off. And uh, as you know, through the financial crisis, most of the companies didn't make it. Uh, we tried to assess what we thought were the causes and results of that. And uh, could we build a better company, a better business model, that would address what we thought were the problems that led to uh, some of the failures uh, in 2008-9, and, 2009. and uh, Build America Mutual was a result of that collaboration. We spent almost two years um, sort of working through that plan and raising the capital to start the company. And uh, it's a BAM is a mutual insurance company. I think probably the first one uh, created in New York in at least 40 or 50 years. And uh, the reason we did that is so that the issuers, the public entities that use insurance would essentially be our shareholders, our members. And the reason for that is we're not driven by high returns on equity. We're driven by high accumulation of capital and the safety of the bonds that we insure for investors.
0: So,
2: (coughs) Sean, given that, and given that it's been a really uh, benevolent backdrop to issue debt over the past eight years, 10 years. Why is there this impression that a lot of local and state municipalities have declined to issue debt to pay for big infrastructure projects? Why are we hearing this push about the need for a whole rebuilding of American infrastructure?
4: Well, it's a good question. Um, First and foremost, remember that state and local governments represent 90% of the financing for infrastructure in the nation. So when people think, has the federal government passed a bill that's going to uh, finance state and local governments, I mean, uh, infrastructure in the country, it's really state and local governments that are doing that. They are the, the really the engine behind infrastructure finance. Uh, the thing I mentioned before uh, is directly related to that, and that is the fact that um, municipalities, their revenue uh, strength has been increasing since the recession. That happens gradually as tax bases uh, grow, real estate values increase, and that enables municipalities to then commit to new projects when, when things are in a recession, they actually are trying to claw back and make sure that they keep themselves in, uh, in a fiscally sound position. So it's interesting for, um, for, for BAM because as a mutual insurance company, we do a number of things that are unique. One is that we provide credit profiles a financial description of each credit that we do. We update it every year. It's available for free on our website. And part of a logical outgrowth of that is our Green Star program. So the the speaker before us, uh, Andrew Wiley, was talking about um, uh, green bonds. What we have recently launched is an examination within the credit uh, analysis we already do on each credit. About 20% of the credits that we analyze will qualify as green bonds into the market, so we think that over um, the near and long term, we will be uh, help the market understand and expand the green bond initiative, which really comes down to uh, environmental and, and climate um, appropriate uh, bonds, water treatment, uh, water purification, uh, renewable energy, renewable energy exactly, and all those things I think pair up very well with what um, BAM does. You know, right now. We've been in uh, writing business for six years. Uh, That comprises $53 billion worth of municipal bonds for 6,500 different issuers. So when you said what's different about what we do, one of the things that's different is we are looking at sort of core municipal finance. So general obligation bonds, revenue bonds from taxes. It's really st- straight down the middle of the fairway in terms of what is classically municipal finance. And for the investing market, that's important because they can look at us as ultimate transparency, look at every credit on our website, look at the financial strength of our AA from Standard & Poor's, and look at our commitment as being the only, muni- only municipal guarantor. So if you think about it in those terms, what happened in the crisis? It wasn't municipal bonds that defaulted in mass; it was other things that happened. And BAM's committed to the fact that we only do municipal finance, and the core of that business is state and local governments. They're the engine behind the growth and uh, rehabilitation of infrastructure in the market. And finally, if you just think about what's the demand, you know, the American Society of Civil Engineers has projected a $200 billion need for additional financing over the next 10 years. In, in infrastructure.
2: And just real quickly in 30 seconds, do you think that that's going to be difficult to finance given the fact that rates are rising uh, more and potentially the credit cycle could, could turn?
5: Well first of all Sean that's 200 billion a year more so 2 trillion over the next 10 years that we have to increase. Um, well, in- interest rates are definitely a factor because uh, if we're going to achieve that kind of funding rate over and above what the municipal market is already achieving which is about Two hundred and fifty billion a year in new money financing. Um, that's got, those bonds have got to, it's got to be financed with some sort of long-term debt, municipal bonds, or, and it's got to be paid back over time with the revenue stream.
1: Thanks very much, gentlemen. Bob Cochran, Chairman, Build America Mutual. Sean McCarthy, Chief Executive Officer, Build America Mutual.
2: are focusing today on Caterpillar, which has been a bellwether of global growth. And today that bellwether is not signaling something positive. Joining us now is Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion Industrials columnist. And Brooke, I'm just wondering, I mean, Caterpillar didn't boost its outlook for the year, which analysts had expected. But was it really so bad, this report, or are investors simply looking for the negative right now because they're feeling uh, skittish and are looking to uh, take profits right now?
6: I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think what's really key to keep in mind here is that nobody's saying that growth is all of a sudden going to stop and we're going to start to see sales decline at these industrial companies. It's all about where the momentum is heading. And I think what Caterpillar's report indicated is that the sales momentum is slowing. So you're not. You're still going to see growth, but you're probably not going to see it at the rates that we had been seeing. Now, part of that is just lapping tougher comparisons, but there's also questions about how demand is going to hold up in some of these markets. And as Caterpillar pushes through price increases to offset some of these rising raw material costs uh, amid the trade war, you know, could that ultimately affect demand and sort of accelerate the growth slowdown that we're already seeing naturally as we get later in the economic cycle?
1: Brooke, uh, if you happen to be a company that is buying or leasing a Caterpillar, let's say, off-highway truck, you know, in the mining industry or construction business, those items, they're like $3.5 million just for the one-time purchase. If you're financing it, things are going to get more expensive. If you're buying it, raw material inputs are making it more expensive. What has happened in three months? How come we didn't hear this three months ago in the last earnings report?
6: Uh, You know, I think we did. I think this uh, price-cost headwind has been a matter of debate for the bulk of this year. As you know, people sort of digest the tariffs, and especially as the tariff actions have escalated, I think the big question is how companies are going to be handling this. And you make a good point that, you know, if Caterpillar raises its prices, those customers are also seeing rising costs on their end. So their ability to absorb those price increases is really gets to the heart of what the issue is here, is are they willing to tolerate that and continue buying equipment? Or do they just, you know, decide to hold off on some of these replacement purchases or especially new equipment purchases?
2: Do we get a sense of which industries were the most positive for Caterpillar which were the most negative? In other words, are there sectors of their business that are doing uh, better or, or worse?
6: Uh, yeah. So they also reported their um, September sales uh, on Monday night, uh, and that's a, on a three-month rolling average basis. And what you saw there was a slight slowdown in construction equipment sales mm. growth. Um, and that was offset by you know pretty strong momentum in its mining segment, which makes sense because mining is coming back from a pretty severe downturn. Um, but you are seeing a little bit of that weakness in construction and sort of you couple that with a lot of the negative sentiment that we've been hearing for homebuilder stocks yeah. and for you know construction in general, and I think that uh, is definitely something that investors are picking up on today. Well And that's actually a really interesting point. I was going to go to that. I mean, does this signal something broader
2: about the slowdown in the in the home building sector and just sort of in general about some of the uh, the industries that have supported the recovery so far really slowing down and perhaps an even more meaningful way than people have have realized.
6: I think, you know, a lot of what you're seeing is sort of coming up on the peak in the cycle, and that affects companies in different ways. So 3M also reported today, and its stock is getting crushed. And a lot of the slowdown that it saw is in these shorter cycle markets. So automotive, electronics, um, uh, healthcare as well. And some of those have had stronger momentum for a longer stretch of time. And I would also put Um, residential construction, home building in that. They've they've been on this recovery track for a longer period and so it makes sense that we might be nearing the, the peak of that versus some of these longer cycle businesses like I think of United Technologies which is also out today and it's aerospace business. I mean it takes those orders very far in advance. You don't just show up at United Technologies and buy a jet engine. So those backlogs, those order rates should help United Technologies and companies in those later cycle businesses maintain momentum through 2019 Team, but as you sort of look at these dynamics, I think you can read into some of the trends we're seeing at the shorter cycle companies that, that we might be nearer a turning point than, uh, than not.
1: I want to thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Brooke Sutherland, of course, our uh, expert in all things having to do with mergers, acquisitions, and just general corporate uh Go ahead.
2: You, something really strange because as Brooke is talking about home builders and how there has been this slowdown, Toll Brothers, one of the biggest home builders, their shares are up today nearly 2%. So go figure. There actually is some strength today in home builders, even though there is a generally negative sentiment. And frankly, home builder stocks, as Dave Wilson has pointed out in his chart of the day, uh, actually have entered a bear market. So perhaps some people are seeing some uh, opportunities.
1: President Donald Trump is set to meet with the Chinese President Xi Jinping at the Group of 20 Nations Summit in Buenos Aires. The topic, of course, is going to be trade disputes. And uh, the... uh the information comes from the white house economic advisor larry kudlow and here to tell us more about the dispute and whether it presents some opportunities is john authors of bloomberg opinion john welcome as always and uh, as the senior markets editor for bloomberg Mm. wonder if you could just describe emerging markets does china still count as an emerging market
7: yes i mean to some extent, there's still an argument about whether it's even as far as emerging, given that it still doesn't open its markets as freely to uh, to the outside world as it should. That's why we've had the uh, uh, annual excitement uh, over whether MSCI is going to, you know, the, the index group that uh, largely controls uh, the description of emerging markets, whether MSCI is going to be including uh, Chinese A shares in its index. But it doesn't really matter terribly which measure of China you take at the moment. They're They're all down quite badly over the last six months
2: yeah (laughs) john first of all i want to just welcome you to bloomberg because uh you spent uh nearly 30 years at the financial times in a a variety of of positions and it is a coup for us that you joined us so i just want to say congratulations and welcome Um, john i want to just take a step back Mm. and look at the broader sell-off today in Mm. markets and on a certain level it's almost comforting and and i'll tell you why because you're not seeing uh bonds and stocks sell off in tandem. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, Hmm. do you think that this is actually um, somewhat more predictable, that basically this is the market more broadly saying to the Federal Reserve, slow down, growth is going to slow going forward, higher input costs are going to weigh on companies, and things are just going to uh, take a breather for a minute? I mean, is that the interpretation here?
7: That's one interpretation of it, certainly, not, not necessarily an unreasonable one. Uh, Another way of looking at it, which uh, would be relatively healthy, um, although it would suggest that the president might have been a little unwise to make uh, the stock market such a measure of his success, is that we might finally be getting to the long-awaited point when main street gains somewhat at the expense of wall street that you're seeing uh you know a number of the companies that have disappointed on earnings have, have cited the problems of rising costs including labor costs obviously that's good news for the very many very uh, frustrated people here in the u.s who have uh, suffered sluggish wage growth for a long time similarly as the economy strengthens and and uh, rates go up that makes it harder you know harder sledding to uh, Hardest letting to uh, make money out of the stock market, but it, it suggests that there is more genuine, robust health out here. So to some extent, um, this is what had been hoped for for a while. You could argue, yes, that it's a, that it's a healthy form of growth. The, the problem... Um, there is a problem. The, the problem probably arises with, uh, as we mentioned earlier, what exactly is going on in China. We're in a bipolar world in, in many senses in the moment. The, there are two economies that count the US and, and China. And uh, some of the things that are happening in China cannot be ascribed merely to trade tensions which are yet seriously to bite, and they, they plainly are concerning.
1: John you're famous for taking the long view if you're an investor <laughs> you. that takes the long view where would you be telling people to look for prospective assets to purchase
7: somewhere other than the US more or less anywhere other than the US frankly i mean in, in terms of for in, in the very long term the uh, it's very hard to dispute the, the notion that the single most important factor in the return you'll get in the end is how much you paid for it at the start uh, there are almost no stock markets out there that look particularly expensive other than the US, which uh, I've been in various arguments with uh, people now that my blue, my email is starting to regularly go out from, from Bloomberg, uh, yeah. and so Bloomberg readers are discovering that I think U.S. stocks are overpriced. Uh, uh, My beloved FT readers have known that for a while. Uh, U.S. stocks are plainly overpriced. If you don't believe it, don't believe it. Send me an email and I'll try to convince you otherwise. (laughs) Well done. Uh, but, but, But outside of the U.S., most of the world has interesting characteristics to it. You can certainly argue whether some of the more apparently cheap markets are are value traps. The fact that the cheapest mainstream stock market at the moment is Russia does tell you something about why it might be cheap right there. But uh, outside the US, there are interesting opportunities.
2: So is Italy interesting? Or is it, uh, is it selling off for a reason? Italy, Italy is
7: fascinating. You know, I would even say it's very entertaining. Um,
2: you have to be entertaining though in 30 yes. seconds. No, no, no. <laughs> I,
7: I, I, Italy. If you want to make if you if you want to try to be clever and make an opportunic by, opportunistic by, don't do it now in Italy because <laughs> I don't see a way in which this uh, political standoff is resolved quickly. This isn't uh, Greece. The Italians really can try to call the Europeans bluff, and the Europeans really can't. Uh, Have bring the kind of leverage against Italy that they used against uh, Greece, but the bond market can. So this is uh, this is not the time to dive in yet, unless you really feel like you might. Like Mega Millions, it might work out for you, but I wouldn't recommend it.
2: (laughs) It might be be trying to get the jackpot for the uh, $1.6 billion uh, pool that's out there for the lottery that nobody has won yet. John Authors, Senior Markets Editor for Bloomberg. We welcome him to Bloomberg. We're thrilled that he has joined us. We really appreciate you joining us right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.